Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted to have on the show today, Paul Austin, founder and CEO of Third Wave, an educational platform for safe, structured, and responsible psychedelic use. As we're approaching show 400, one of the things we continue to look for as a production team is topics that are important and influential in the field of leadership, topics that are slightly edgier than we did in our foundational shows. So, Paul, welcome to the edgy, innovating leadership. Maureen, it's an honor to have the opportunity to talk about psychedelics, microdosing, consciousness in today's episode. So thank you for having the courage to broach this topic. It's been hot and sexy in some ways, and it still remains edgy. And it'll be really great to sort of flesh this out in terms of how it relates to leadership development for your audience. Thank you. So the reason that I selected you was that your work links psychedelics and leadership very heavily. And in fact, you and I use a lot of the same models so our listeners can hear the linkage between how we talk about leadership development and things like shadow and how the use of psychedelics can amplify or accelerate that development. So give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself. You don't look like Timothy Leary necessarily or Not yet. <laughs> for all of the stereotypes about what people who would use psychedelics might look like. You don't fit the stereotype. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not from a big city. I wasn't raised on a commune or, or in an intentional community. I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan uh, in a suburb of 15,000 people, spent my entire childhood and adolescence going to church, playing violin, playing soccer, you know, being raised in a more traditional environment. Morality was dictated by the law. And so what the law said was legal was good. What the law said was illegal was bad. And I was first confronted with this dichotomy when I was 16. At the age of 16, I tried cannabis for the first time. About six weeks after that experience, my parents found out about it and they sat me down they didn't know how to handle it. Their son doing an illegal drug. You know, oh my gosh, what is this? And so I remember my dad saying it was the most disappointed that he had been since his brother had passed away in a car accident like 25 years prior. That just hit me like, like rock. So I remember being just kind of blown away by that, running out of the house. It was a cold, rainy November day in Michigan, walking for 30, 40 minutes, and then eventually coming back home and just having to confront the situation that I was in, which was I was grounded. I was, I was disciplined. I was punished. I was shamed. That sort of set the frame for my relationship with illicit substances. And so at the age of 19, that same friend who introduced me to cannabis also introduced me to psilocybin mushrooms. I had my first psychedelic mushroom experience at the age of 19, and that opened up a path where cannabis was just interesting and fun. Psychedelics were incredibly meaningful. I moved to Turkey when I was 21, uh, where I taught English for a year. While teaching English, I taught myself how to start an online business, soon after became a digital nomad. I was listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast, and this was early 2015 when I was living in Thailand, and Tim Ferriss had a guest named Dr. James Fadiman. And Dr. James Fadiman had been a researcher in the 1960s when LSD was still legal and did the only research on LSD for creativity and problem solving. And what they found in that research is that LSD was an incredibly effective tool to help people come up with novel solutions to problems that they had been struggling with for months at a time. Now, the day of the study, uh, this is 1966, Dr. James Fadiman receives a letter from the federal government essentially saying, LSD is now illegal. You have to stop everything that you are doing. And so from that day, he basically quit psychedelics. It wasn't until 2010 when he published a book called The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide that he came out and started being more public about psychedelics again. And in that book, he talked about a concept called microdosing which is using sub-perceptible amounts of psychedelics for performance, for healing, for communication, for social ability. So I listened to that podcast, I read the book, and in 2015, I started to microdose myself, found it to be a very helpful modality. And soon after that, really just started to reflect on why are psychedelics illegal? What is it that we know about these substances? What is it that research has taught us about these substances? And so at that point, I started a platform called Third Wave. And the focus of Third Wave was and continues to be 
normalizing psychedelic use through objective education and research. Some of your listeners have probably heard about the clinical research that's being carried out on psychedelics for treatment-resistant depression, for PTSD, for alcoholism. All of this is so important and so necessary. And yet, my focus has always been on the betterment of the well, on leadership, on flow, on performance, on creativity. If I could focus my time and energy on one thing that would move the needle the most, it would be intentional psychedelic use by the leaders who are creating the paradigms of tomorrow. Now you've explained why it's relevant for leaders. Let's talk about what it is a little bit more, because there's microdosing, there are museum doses, there are fully immersive experiences. What are the distinctions and how might a leader even decide if this is something relevant for them, given their concerns about legality? In some cases, they have top secret security clearances. This is a no starter for a lot of people. And yet for many people, including some of our most prominent podcast guests, have talked about doing a significant number of journeys. It is more common than most of us knew. Especially since Michael Pollan published How to Change Your Mind in 2018. That was the inflection point for the intelligentsia kind of people in leadership positions, CEOs, startup founders even went, oh, there's this New York Times bestseller book. Is this useful for me? Could this be useful for me? Could this help? What are the different psychedelics? What are the different use cases? The way to think about it is as a skill, is what I often talk about. So that psychedelic use is something that we can learn. It's something that requires mentorship. It's something that requires an experience. There are probably a number of people who are listening to this who have read an article or maybe even a book, but have yet to try the actual thing. And so when that's the case, the frame that I put on it is, one, this is more legal than you think, meaning in Oregon, the state of Oregon, psilocybin is now legal. Colorado just legalized psilocybin as well. Jamaica, psilocybin is legal. The Netherlands, psilocybin is legal. So if there is someone who's listening to this who has been held back by these considerations of legality, the first perspective that I would offer is there are a lot of jurisdictions in which this is legal. In fact, one of the side projects that I started uh, was a legal psilocybin retreat center called Synthesis, where we've done retreats for over a thousand people, many of whom are Americans in the Netherlands, where it's legal. So I think first and foremost, it's getting familiarity with what is currently legal. The other thing that's currently legal is, is a substance called ketamine. Ketamine is a synthetic, it's a disassociative, and when used in an intentional container, it can be very impactful. I would say not to the same degree as something like psilocybin or even ayahuasca, but it can be very impactful and profound. And so usually when people are new to this, I say, do a little research on psilocybin mushrooms, do a little research on ketamine, and our website, thethirdwave.co, has long-form guides on both of these. We also have a listing of providers. So if you're like, where do I go? What retreat center? What clinic? Who do I work with? We have all of that available on Third Wave. The other perspective to offer is that you don't need to necessarily start with a high dose. So there are a lot of people who are maybe intimidated by, quote-unquote, losing their mind. Because part of the efficacy of psychedelics is this ego-dissolving nature of them, where we sort of lose our normal sense of self and we become part of something that's much greater. It can be a very beautiful experience. It can also be a very intimidating experience. And so what I often tell folks is start low and go slow. You can always start with a microdose, which is anywhere from 100 to 200 milligrams of psilocybin, kind of feel into that, and then just slightly increase. Maybe do 300, maybe do 500, maybe go up to a gram. You don't necessarily need to jump in the deep end right away. It's okay to first learn how to navigate the shallow end of your consciousness before you go super, super deep. That I would say would be the general perspective and way to think about it. And then what I will double down on here is having support, having a guide, having a therapist, having someone who knows that landscape, who can support you in this process is paramount because there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of unknowns and a lot of the efficacy depends on your capacity to feel safe. And so if someone is listening to this, they're quite new to psychedelics. There's a lot of, is this legal? Is this not legal? Am I going to have a bad trip or a challenging experience? Reaching out, finding a guide, a therapist, someone who can support you, someone who can ensure that you are safe, someone who can, who can ensure that you know the landscape. 
if there's one thing that you take away from this entire podcast episode, it's finding that person is so key to having a really meaningful experience. You've also created a very intentional process where participants meet with their guides in advance. They set an intention for the session. They prep for the session. Post-session, they have synthesis conversations. So if my intention is to deal with something that happened in my past or a divorce or uncertainty about a job, I go in with that as my intention and I come out with action items that will help me move through and integrate whatever I learned. It is really part of a development journey intended to help us actually make sustainable changes. A phrase that I love when this comes up is nonspecific amplifier. Psychedelics are nonspecific amplifiers, meaning what is lurking there in the subconscious or the unconscious when doing a high dose of psychedelic will naturally come to the surface. It will amplify whether it's repressed emotion, a story that we don't necessarily want to fully come to terms with, maybe a traumatic experience that has happened in our past. And so the importance cannot be overstated of assessment, preparation, the experience and integration. What we often tell people is the experience itself is really only like, let's say, 20%. What really makes the biggest difference is how are you preparing for that experience? What is your intention going into that experience? And then most importantly, how are you integrating after that experience? We're so conditioned in our culture to expect instantaneous results. Right. I'm going to take this thing. It'll be a, a sort of quick fix magic pill. And my life will be significantly different from this point forward. Now, my assumption is that most of the people who are listening to this podcast probably don't have that lens because they are leaders, because they are innovating, because they're really stepping up in that way. And what often happens is people have these really meaningful and insightful experiences with psychedelics, and then they don't really change anything after, right? There's no actual substantive behavioral change after the fact. It would be similar to like doing a 360 on your leadership style going, oh, okay, yeah, I'm struggling with these things. And then not hiring a coach to actually coach you through the improvements that that 360 is outlining. So you did the 360, you have the awareness, but you're not actually making the changes after the fact. And that's where integration comes in. It's the coach, a therapist, a guide, someone who is actually holding you accountable who's helping you to clarify that insight that's coming through in the psychedelic experience and then actually making substantive behavioral changes for the next week, month, six months, year, three years, however long that period might be. Oftentimes after we work with these high doses of psychedelics or any psychedelic, we come to realize that we're always on a journey, that the path never ends. And I think this is also true for leadership, that we're always ascending and descending. We're never stagnant in our approach to, to life. The idea of magic mushrooms, don't they just fix everything about me? Isn't that the appeal? They create awareness around particularly the shadow, right? When we think of mushrooms, we think of death. We think of the earth. We think of the underground. We think of even the mycelial network. Opening up the shadow, bringing light into the shadow, then allows us to see, oh, these are some of the patterns and behaviors that keep showing up in my relationships. These are the patterns and behaviors that keep showing up in the way that I even, you know, approach work or my colleagues. And that awareness then allows us to go, oh, and I can change that. I have agency. I have choice. I can actually make those shifts. And so what's so magical about these mushrooms is that there are a lot of modalities, breathwork, meditation, yoga, float tanks that can work, but don't always necessarily work. And I find with magic mushrooms and psychedelics, their efficacy is in their power. And that experience will often be an incredible teacher around the shadow, around the challenges that you're facing, around the shifts and improvements that need to be made. And it still requires a commitment to show up and make those changes in everyday life. A lot of people start to get into psychedelics. They go back again and again and again. They dip into the well again and again and again. And I think what you and I both know is, yeah, the insights are helpful and sobriety is key to actually integrating that and making those changes. We talk about shadow. One of my shadows may be that I have an insecurity around some areas of running my business. So I continually look outside myself to other people to step in and help, almost helping beyond a level that's very useful for me. 
as I explore my shadow, I know that this is here. I don't need to do a big trip to now learn that it's here. This is where the sobriety comes in that I need to now integrate my understanding of it and new behaviors so that I own what I should own and delegate what I should delegate. And I think for many of us as leaders, as we move through our professional career, getting right that delegation equation. Because as the business grows, I delegate differently. As we bring on new partners, I delegate differently. And getting that wrong can have a big impact on the business. So my attending to my shadow of you're not good enough really then gives me the opportunity to make more conscious decisions. Let's unpack that a little bit more because what you're even talking about is worthiness. One of the groundbreaking research studies that was done on psilocybin mushrooms was out of Johns Hopkins. And this research was started in 1999. The paper was published in 2006. And the key conclusion from that research was that psilocybin occasions a mystical type experience. And they showed a clear relationship between doing a high dose of psilocybin and having this mystical experience, which other people could say is a connection to source, a connection to God, a connection to the one, a connection to the mystery. What they showed in further research studies was that the stronger that mystical experience, the more healing people experienced from depression, from addiction, from alcoholism, from anxiety. And so when I have reviewed that, when I've talked through it with the researchers, what it comes down to is that sense of unconditional love. That so oftentimes the love that we receive, the love that we experience is conditional because we're humans. Because whether it's from our parents or whether it's from our teachers or whether it's from our friends or from our community, there's almost always a condition on that love. And the reason this sort of connection, the spiritual connection is so healing is because for the first time ever, in some cases, people get to experience that process, that feeling of unconditional love. And what that does then for worthiness, the amount of worth that I feel, I feel like I'm, I'm meant to be here. I feel like I am in the right flow. I feel like, you know, I'm doing what needs to be done. And if that's not the case, then that unconditional love can also be a teacher of these are the things that need to shift and change as a result of that. So when that shows up in a leadership context, right, what we all know is sort of bifurcation between uh, personal and professional is somewhat of an illusion. So it's interesting. In, in running the, the legal psilocybin retreat center that I ran, it was framed as like a wellness retreat, a leadership retreat. So we'd have a lot of people who would come in saying, oh, yeah, I want to get more clarity on my vision for the next year. I want to I want to figure out how do I treat my employees better or I want to figure out these other sort of external things. And what they often found is that when they worked with a high dose of psilocybin, they realized that everything was internal that actually making those shifts and those changes internally, it had this sort of ripple effect that led to changes in the external. And that a lot of the internal stuff was about self-love, was about self-worthiness, was about acceptance of where we are, was about eliminating the rumination, the negative self-talk, the negative hatred. And that when that was cleared up, then we could just show up a lot more light, a lot more free, a lot more connected. And so I often think about that, you know, one of the one of the core frameworks that I love when talking about the overlap of psychedelics and leadership is the leadership circle profile, the LCP. In fact, I just got done within the last few weeks doing a 360 with the LCP. And what they found with the LCP is that there were two key indicators of success in leadership. One was vision and teamwork. So your capacity as a leader to articulate where the company, where the organization is going, and your ability as a leader to empathize, to communicate, to ensure that people feel held and taken care of. And so if we go back to even the example of worthiness, when we heal these insecurities in ourselves, and I found this to be true, when we heal these sort of feelings of not being good enough, then the way that we can show up with our team is a lot more present, a lot more connected because our stuff isn't getting in the way anymore. Our stories aren't getting in the way. We're able to clear that and, and basically not project our own internal landscape onto the world around us because now we know our internal landscape. We're aware of it. Robert Bly, who's one of my favorite writers, would say this is about eating the shadow. So our capacity then to eat the shadow, to take back what we would normally project and blame allows for an elevation of our capacity as a leader overall. As you talk about vision, one of the things that strikes me is as I clean up my shadow, the things that cause me to think I'm not good enough, 
then I will also be more effective at setting a vision for the organization because I'm no longer looking through a dirty window or a distortion mirror at the circus. I'm actually looking through something where I can assess the data when I'm doing a SWOT analysis or looking at foresight modeling and interpret it in the way it is intended to be interpreted with minimal personal bias. If I feel better about myself, I have the capacity then to delve into some of the trickier issues within me. I love this. So the first thing you mentioned was objectivity. Why our capacity to be objective as leaders matters a lot. And what often happens with ego, what often happens with shadow, what often happens with projection is it distorts that feel, right? That our own stuff gets in the way of actually making objective decisions. And so to go back to what I mentioned before, when we experience unconditional love within the sort of realm of a psychedelic, what that teaches us is that our worthiness is not based on our outcome or our results. The ego is always worried about protecting itself. It's always worried about changing. It's always worried about what, what will that person think of me and what will this person think of me? So when we experience unconditional love, we realize, oh, I don't have to worry about all of these things externally. As long as I play that inner game, as long as I focus on that inner game, as long as I remember that I'm fully worthy and capable of receiving that love, then those choices and the, those decisions actually become way more objective. And I think the other thing to double click on is integration. You know, you mentioned for three to six months after this high dose of psilocybin, people will experience more connectedness, more presence, more love, more compassion, more meaning, as long as, and this is the main qualifying thing, as long as there's a coach, there's a guide, there's, there's someone who is in their corner helping them to remain accountable to those shifts and changes, to those insights that came up in the throes of the psychedelic experience. And I'm glad you brought up microdosing as part of this because from my lens, and I mentioned the skill of psychedelics earlier, it's not just take a high dose of mushrooms, see you later. When I look at that skill of psychedelics, it's how are we leveraging high doses to set that new North Star? That's the way that I frame it. How are we setting that new North Star? What is the vision of that? How are we potentially utilizing microdoses as a way to lubricate the path of evolution, the path of transformation, the path of shift and change that aligns with that new North Star? And then how are we utilizing non-psychedelic modalities like meditation, breath work, yoga as sort of that everyday maintenance of what I would call spiritual hygiene, to stay clean, to stay present, to stay aware, to stay in a parasympathetic state, right? That this isn't just take some psychedelics and you'll be good. This is actually how are you using that opening of neuroplasticity? Because that's the thing about psychedelics is they are incredible facilitators of neuroplasticity. So they've shown this in clinical research with microdoses, for example, that when you microdose consistently, BDNF goes up, brain-derived neurotropic factor. Brain-derived neurotropic factor is a precursor to neuroplasticity. That means that window of plasticity is remaining open. If we're microdosing after a high-dose experience, you know, there are probably a lot of folks, myself included, who maybe have struggled to start a meditation practice. And so one of the key things that I emphasize with those who are working with psychedelics is how can you use that opening to actually commit and integrate to a consistent meditation practice or a consistent breathwork practice or yoga or whatever it is, change your diet, exercise, and sleep. So much is actually how are we shifting our lifestyle after the fact rather than just the experience itself. For people who grew up in the era I did, we saw the public service commercials, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. I grew up thinking if you tried something like mushrooms, you would probably try to dive off a roof naked. And yet many of us did these things in college. But when I think about this, it still comes to mind that this is a potential outcome. And yet you're describing a safe container moderated by an incredibly experienced facilitator, often a therapist. There were attorneys, there were people in fields specifically geared to helping with these kinds of experiences not just, hey, I want to go facilitate journeys. Yeah, not an Instagram shaman yeah. is, is sort of the, the, <laughs> yeah. the phrase that I like to use. So describe a little bit of the non-Instagram shaman experience. What's coming up is a couple of things. One, and I haven't mentioned this before, but the whole idea of this third wave of psychedelics is that 
we've had two waves before this, right? So the first wave of psychedelic use being ancient and indigenous use of psychedelics. What a lot of people don't know is Plato and Aristotle used to participate in something called the Eleusinian Mysteries, where they used a psychedelic beverage as part of their process of transformation, right? So the ancient Greeks were well-known. They had a really deep relationship with psychedelics. Ayahuasca and the Amazon, Soma is written about in the Upanishads of Bhagavad Gita. In other words, as a human species, we've had a relationship with these psychoactive entheogens for literally tens of thousands of years. That's one thing to root in, that the sort of interest in psychedelics is not new. It didn't really come back into our awareness as a Western culture until the 1950s. LSD was invented in 1938. It was discovered in 1943, its psychedelic properties. In the 1950s and 60s, there were over a thousand clinical papers published on the efficacy of LSD for everything from alcoholism to end-of-life anxiety to treatment-resistant depression. What happened is... In 1968, Richard Nixon, he notices that all these hippies who are also protesting against the Vietnam War are also using psychedelics. And he knows that he can't make protesting illegal, but he certainly can make certain drugs illegal. So they end up passing this law that makes all drugs that are not basically alcohol, tobacco, or caffeine totally illegal. So cocaine, heroin, methamphetamines, but also psilocybin mushrooms, LSD, these psychedelics. And so what happened then throughout the 70s, 80s, you know, the just say no era is we were conditioned as a culture to associate psychedelics with these other what I would call hard drugs, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamines. What is actually true is that psychedelics are anti-addictive. And that's largely because from a neurobiological perspective, they are much more active with serotonin than dopamine. So cocaine, more dopamine, psychedelics, more serotonin. So Psychedelics, even though we consider these all illegal drugs, are so different from cocaine and heroin, which is kind of why all of this research and resurgence of interest is happening, that these are actually helpful at healing depression. These can actually be tools that leaders can use, that these aren't things that you're going to become unnecessarily addicted to and are going to ruin your life. Now, with that said, people who are predisposed to psychosis, people who have a family history should not be using psychedelics. So these sort of horror stories that were amplified in the media in the 1960s was sometimes because people were just doing way too much, sometimes because they didn't have a guide that was present with them, sometimes because they were predisposed to psychosis. It's not like psychedelics are totally without risks. There are risks involved in working with these, and almost all of them are mitigated by approaching this with intention, responsibility, and with the help of a guide, a shaman, a therapist, someone else like that. This is sort of all a buildup to the question of what is the importance of a facilitator, a guide, a coach? Walk us through what does this experience look like and specifically the range from if I'm dealing with trauma, I am likely to delve into that trauma to heal it. But that's different than going to a party. That's intense psychological work. For sure. Other people dealing with how do I create more engagement with my employees, that's going to be a very different journey. And there's almost like now three distinctions here, right? There's sort of what we could call the recreational, irresponsible, unintentional use of psychedelics. I'm going to a rave. I'm going to do a bunch of acid. Or I'm going to a college party. I'm just going to take some mushrooms. There's that. Now, as a caveat here, a mini dose of psilocybin mushrooms is a much healthier tool than alcohol. So there are people who will take small doses as like a tool for social ability, but that's not so much our focus in this conversation. So there's that. Then there is the use of psychedelics for healing, and that can be done individually. So a lot of the clinical trials, for example, on how psilocybin is effective at healing major depressive disorder or treatment-resistant depression, that's usually two therapists and one person. So I'm the person who is taking the psilocybin. I have two therapists, usually a man and a woman. And then what happens in those contexts and those situations is I take the psilocybin. About 45 minutes after I take the psilocybin, the effects start to kick in. Almost always I'm wearing an eye mask. I have headphones on to listen to a playlist or music. And I'm guided through about a six-hour journey with an eye mask and music on to really go deep into my inner world. Because the reason we have music, the reason we have an eye mask is so we're not pulled into the external environment, but instead we can go deep, deep within to that subconscious and unconscious, to those stories, to those emotions that we've repressed for a long time that we haven't really looked at. 
the best metaphor, it's like we're cleaning out our closet. We're going down into the basement and all those things that we really didn't want to look at, we actually have an opportunity to confront. And that catharsis, the word catharsis is central in this. That catharsis is what is responsible for a lot of the healing potential of psychedelics because so much trauma is rooted in an emotional imprint. Assault, alcoholic parents, it could be, uh, you know, rape. There's so many big T traumas that happen. And what happens is we just tuck that away. We don't look at it. And for it to be healed, we actually need to bring it back out and we need to forgive ourselves. We need to forgive the experience. We need to love that thing, whatever that thing was. And psychedelics make that much easier for us to do. The other then consideration, is, as you talked about, is not necessarily deep healing individual work, but also group experiences. The Psilocybin Retreat Center that I started in the Netherlands, we would have groups of 15 people who would do ceremonies together. From an indigenous perspective, this is how they often have worked with psychedelics. It's not just, okay, drink ayahuasca or take psilocybin mushrooms and go into your own inner world. You're both going through your internal process and you're doing that within community. And a lot of what people talk about in terms of the healing potential of psychedelics is that feeling of connection, that feeling of social bonding, that feeling of community. You know, you'll often have a shaman or you'll have a lead facilitator. They will do an invocation and sort of open up the space. You will then consume the sacrament, the medicine, the psychedelic. And then typically in group experiences, you'll have like a yoga mat. You might have a pillow. You might have a blanket. You also can have an eye mask. There's often live music or a playlist that's bringing you through that entire experience. And again, for the sake of today's conversation, the most common group experiences is either with psilocybin or ayahuasca. And those typically last for anywhere from four to six hours. What I've been experimenting with and what a lot of other folks have been experimenting with in the space is what would it look like to do, for example, retreats for YPO groups? So bringing a group of executives together, not necessarily from the same team, but from different teams to both have an experience and also unpack that experience in terms of how it impacts their leadership style, in terms of how it impacts their company and organization. That is still, I would say, a pioneering edge in this space. Even when we look at the indigenous use of psychedelics, a lot of the focal point of that was healing. Uh -huh. You know, because the role of a shaman in indigenous society is as a healer. I would say the closest thing to what I just talked about, psychedelics for leadership, was actually these Eleusinian mysteries that Plato and Aristotle and Cicero and all of these ancient philosophers immerse themselves within is that the focus of those Eleusinian mysteries was this sort of spiritual connection to something greater and then the sort of insights that, that came out of that. You know, we talked about there can be group ceremonies for healing. Those are often led by a shaman. The shaman was in indigenous societies, is often known as a healer. And there's a lot of groups that are pioneering new methodologies. Could be for YPO groups and group groups of executives where we're really looking at how can we come together, work with psychedelics in an intentional container, and not necessarily have the focus be deep healing work, but instead have the focus be vision, have the focus be creativity, have the focus be innovation. Because again, to double click on a point that I made earlier, these are non-specific amplifiers. So if we go into an experience with the intention of exploring X, Y, and Z, what can often happen is that these can be incredible tools to help facilitate that process. So if I think about a YPO group, tying it back to your comment about leadership circle, that one of the most important skills of leaders is setting a vision that I could go to a retreat with other senior executives, not just random people who show up, and we could talk about our organizational visions through the process of journeying, have a curated experience to help each of us evolve our thinking around our visions and how we implement them. Curation is a really great word to emphasize here because when we do psychedelics, in a group container, we are very sensitive to the other people who are in that experience. And so for anyone who's listening to this, pay very close attention. If, if you're considering this and you want to go to a group experience, ask whoever's facilitating that, ask them who else is showing up, who else is attending. And if you can, be very intentional about who you're choosing to sit with in that circle, because the potential of an incredible breakthrough from that is substantial. 
you know, we are the average of the five people that we spend the most time around. And when we work with a psychedelic in a, in a group container, a lot of the normal, I would say, guards that we have up fall away. And so when we're that vulnerable and that open, it really is important that we're sitting with people who we feel aligned with in terms of our intention for that experience and that journey. In other words, if someone is interested in this from a leadership perspective, from a personal development and an awareness perspective, don't go sit in a ceremony where everyone there is really interested in healing early childhood trauma. Those would be two very different intentions. If I want to be exploring and addressing some of my own inner challenges, I don't want to go with someone with whom I have a challenging relationship. Right. Because what is so key to the healing with psychedelics is full surrender, full vulnerability, because that allows everything to come up that needs to be processed. And if we feel like we have to hide parts of ourselves because we have an issue or challenge or disagreement with someone else in that space, that will naturally impact the overall experience. It sounds like curating changes depending on the goal of the group. So if I go with a YPO group, you're going to curate a different experience than addressing a trauma experience. And the facilitators could also be different. Like, I would assume that if you're dealing with trauma, you're going to have a therapist in the room. What this often comes down to is not just the day of the experience, but it's the assessment, the questions that are asked in preparation. It's what's done in the integration process as well. And for that actual experience, it might mean if someone's interested in this for creativity, for leadership, that it might not be a high, high dose, full mystical experience that it could be a slightly lower dose level. So for example, you know, I mentioned Dr. James Fadiman earlier in the podcast. Uh, he did this research in 1966 where he gave 27 professionals the equivalent of 100 micrograms of LSD, which is a moderate dose. And he found that that was the optimal dose to help them problem solve. And so if someone is coming into this, it may be optimal not to just do five grams or seven grams of mushrooms, but actually do a slightly lower amount because you're not just going full-blown into another universe or another world. There's a way in which you're still navigating this reality and this existence, which allows you to be a bit more in tune with problem-solving and innovation and uh, kind of awareness about shifts and changes that can happen. Because again, the very high dose is optimal for a mystical experience. And that mystical experience is non-duality. It's oneness with God. It is the universe and everything included. And it's very difficult to process potential challenges and issues with, let's say, business or leadership in that frame of mind. It's just when you're in that, you're just thinking about the universe and the greatness of life, and it becomes very mythical. To get, again, a little more technical, it sounds like the substance I choose, whether it's ayahuasca or peyote or psilocybin or LSD or ketamine, will vary the dosage will vary based on my objectives. The people I'm doing it with will vary depending on my intention. And whether I do it with a group or individually, I could, I assume, call you and we would facilitate an individual experience or I could go to Colorado and join a group somewhere. Or the Netherlands or Jamaica, right? And so there are all these, and I'm glad you laid out all those factors, right? Because it's like, which type of psychedelic? How much of that psychedelic? Group or individual? coach and facilitator or shaman or therapist, right? And so just having that sort of landscape then allows someone to go, okay, then based on my intention, because let's be honest, a lot of people who are in leadership positions, they may still have healing work that needs to be done. They may still have shadow that needs to be processed. Just because you're a leader doesn't mean you have to make your intention leadership development when working with psychedelics. You can make your intention healing that thing that happened to you when you were eight, nine or 10 or whatever it is. Right. And so that intention, why are you doing this? It always comes back to intention, will then dictate what set and setting you choose for the experience. So describe set and setting. So set and setting is a phrase that comes from Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary was the sort of cavalier maverick in the 1960s, Harvard professor who was fired and ended up really setting off the counterculture. And he got this from the indigenous people who worked with psilocybin mushrooms in particular. Set is short for mindset. What is your mindset going into that experience? How have you prepared yourself to go into it? And then setting is what is the actual physical, environmental sort of setting of taking that? Are you in a maloka, which is like a, a temple for ayahuasca? 
Are you in your living room? Are you in the woods? Are you at a party? Are you at a rave, right? That setting dictates a lot of the experience because, again, when we take these psychedelics, we are very susceptible and very vulnerable and very suggestible to everything around us. And so really being intentional about that setting matters. And so some facilitators, like some facilitators who have gone through our, our training program, they only do experiences in the woods because they believe that setting allows for nature connectedness. And they believe that that nature connectedness is actually an incredibly healing thing. Other people who go through our training program, they may be clinical therapists. They only do it on a couch with an eye mask with music because they feel like more variables are controlled and the person can actually go deeper into the subconscious and unconscious and heal whatever needs to be healed in that way. And so these are, these are really good questions to ask coaches or facilitators or guides or therapists if you're considering working with someone. You know, how do you set up your experience? Kind of where do you host it? Or what environment? What type of preparation do you do? What type of integration do you do? Being intentional about the questions that you're asking someone who you're about to go into the space with is, is really important. You know, the other one I would ask is, are you certified? Right. Do you have training? Yeah. In this, or are you just an Instagram shaman? There are a lot of people who can just hang a shingle, right? And say, oh, I'm this. Well, how do we know you're that? Especially in a space like this, where it's still largely illegal. It's a bit of a wild west. And this is this is why through Third Wave, we've offered the training program and the certification for coaches that we have, because the ethical integrity is paramount. Because again, people are so suggestible, they're so sensitive when they're going into this space that they need to know that they can trust without a doubt the people that they are working with. And we believe that education and training, so our program, it's like a six-month program, and we also have a retreat as part of it because what also is really important is that the facilitator that you're working with has been there before, meaning they've done high doses of mushrooms many, many times. They've navigated that landscape themselves. They're not just bringing you through something that they themselves aren't familiar with or they themselves aren't aware of because when we work with these high doses of psychedelics, it can be a very weird experience. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of unknowns. And so knowing that you can work with a facilitator who has navigated that territory themselves, they haven't just looked at a map. They've actually gone into the territory and worked their way through it. That I think is paramount for the integrity of a coach, facilitator, a guide that you are working with. It's already a precious space to work with a coach because people share things that are important and personal. To be in a space that is also suggestible and altered and more exposed, it's really important for folks to be with someone who has the experience to guide them through any range of outcomes that can happen. Because even if working with executives, to your point, they've had the same traumas that the rest of the population has had. I've had clients share things that I never imagined would have been true. And the facilitator has to ethically be prepared to deal with that and probably have someone on speed dial if it's someone who is likely to have had trauma. If you have trauma, it would make sense to let your therapist know you're going to go do the journey. And if something happens... I need to know that you can answer the phone between 10 and 2 on Thursday or be part of my journey team so that I don't end up opening wounds that are in the process of being healed. Or that I, as a coach, can't necessarily transmute uh -huh. or transform, right? And so th this is what we, we emphasize in the training program as well. It's, as a coach, as a facilitator, you are not alone, right? You exist within a web. You exist within a network. In fact, that's what people say again and again when they join the training program. It's like the education is great. The retreat was beautiful. But the community that came out of this was phenomenal because there are situations that, you know, I might have a, a client come in who's on certain medications, right? They might be on Prozac or Zoloft or Wellbutrin. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't feel qualified necessarily to help them wean off those medications through psychedelics. So I'm going to bring in a psychiatrist who can help with that process. I will still support them and hold space for them. But knowing our boundaries as coaches and as facilitators is so, so key. And that's where this sense of humility comes in. And it's why psychedelics can be such a great teacher for that. Because back to objectivity, the more objective we are about how can I really help? And what are my boundaries of being able to help? And where do I need to bring in, you know, someone who is clinically trained and clinically informed or someone who's a medical professional or someone who might have a more shamanic background? right? We've sort of been told this lie in particularly Western culture that we are an individual and that we exist within a vacuum. And I think 
what psychedelics teach more than anything is that we are interconnected, right? And that the our, our capacity as coaches to really support a client to the best of our ability is interdependent with our community and network of facilitators, coaches, space holders, uh, psychiatrists, to ensure that that client feels 100% supported, no matter what might come up in that process of coaching. I'm going to pivot a little bit and talking about the phrase, wake up, grow up, clean up, show up. What is the process that we do as coaches? And certainly psilocybin enables this process. So wake up, grow up, clean up, show up. This was a Ken Wilber phrase, which, you know, some of your listeners may may already know. The waking up process, I think, with psychedelics is, is pretty explanatory, right? The waking up process is is awakening to the truth that we are interconnected with everything around us. And so psychedelics help to facilitate that because they dissolve the boundaries of the ego and allow us to feel into that entire experience. Once we wake up, then that process of maturation of growing up, the way that I frame it, is we start to take responsibility for everything around us. Right? And this goes back to what I mentioned before, eating the shadow. Before waking up, before even growing up, we tend to project blame. We, we tend to give away our power in that way. And as part of that growing up process, we realize we have to take all of that back. And we have to accept full 100% responsibility for everything that happens to us. Because if something is happening in the external landscape, it is likely a reflection of something internally that is going on for us that needs to be addressed or adjusted. As we start to eat that shadow, we need to make sure that we're staying clean along the way. So this goes back into this sort of skill of psychedelics. How are we continually coming back into a state of present moment awareness? How are we continually ensuring that we are letting go of stories that don't serve us anymore? How are we continually making sure that we, we're, we're eating well, that we're sleeping, that we're exercising, that process of, of just hygiene, spiritual hygiene is so necessary? And as we master that waking up, growing up, cleaning up, our capacity to show up in our fullest power is amplified and elevated way more than we had previously because we're taking back those projections. We're staying present and clean. And so then with some of these, I mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, some of these challenges that we're facing, right? Some of these crises that we're facing, that capacity to not back down, to not be intimidated by where we're at, but actually be excited to show up, to actually create new systems and new paradigms. Psychedelics through that waking up process allow us to see that vision and that insight, but that commitment every day to keep showing up for ourselves, but more importantly, to show up for our family, to show up for our communities, to show up for our earth. I think that is one of the greatest teachings that psychedelics allow for is the remembrance that we are not here to serve our own ego, that we are here to serve our team, that we are here to serve our communities, and that we are here to serve sort of the greater trajectory of life on earth. And working with psychedelics in an intentional way, it's an incredible tool to make that process way less intimidating and way easier. That's a beautiful place to end, kind of where we started, that leaders are facing massive challenges right now. The expectation on them is that they are going to lead us through the most complex time we've faced in human history. And most leaders, the folks I work with, are certainly well-intended, but I don't know anyone that's fully equipped to deal with the volume of challenges we're facing right now. So the use of psilocybin is a beautiful tool for people that resonate with it to help wake up, become more conscious, clean up, eat the shadow, navigate the trauma, metabolize it, stay clean, then do the really important work individually and collectively. How do we come together as leaders to cohere to solve the problems we're facing? Because to your point, many of the problems we're facing can't be fixed by an individual or a company or a sector, and in some cases, not even a country. So we have to find ways to collaborate. How do we come together beyond our egos to really dig into the intractable challenges that are ours to resolve because if we don't, the next generation inherits a condition much worse than what we inherited. No individual is fully equipped. This is why we live in community. This is why we rely even on others. This is why social bonding is so important. And as we go into this world of 
greater complexity, greater uncertainty. Psychedelics are also phenomenal tools to teach us how to be adaptable, to teach us how not to get stagnant, how not to get attached, but how to always come back to be that observer, to shift and move as we need to shift and move because we're living in a whole new world. Nothing will be the same as it was. I would challenge our listeners to send us questions for Paul and let us curate our next conversation with your questions in mind. I shared the questions I thought people had, but I'm sure that an hour is insufficient to cover what is Paul's life work and an intense topic that folks should go into this experience if they choose to do it with a clear understanding of what they're stepping into, the limitations, and how to create things like set and setting rather than having an experience that is traumatizing? Questions, yes, because I would love to do an encore and, and come back and go into more detail and go to Third Wave, the thethirdwave.co. Check out our guides. As I mentioned before, finding a facilitator, a retreat. We have a, we have a directory of vetted providers there as well. We have a podcast as well. So we have a ton of free education and content for people to get more immersed in this if, if they so choose. Beautiful. So how would people best connect with you? I heard go to the website. If they have additional questions, where would they direct them? Is it LinkedIn? Is it your email? I'm on LinkedIn. My email is paul at thethirdwave.co. Send me additional questions there. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at paulaustin 3 w uh, we have a newsletter as well. So if people just sign up for the newsletter, they can also respond to that newsletter directly. I'm on all of those platforms regularly, and I would encourage folks to reach out with additional questions after listening to this. Beautiful. Thank you. And to our listeners, I said, ask us questions. Send them to Paul. Send them to me, to inquiries at Innovative Leadership. Thank you to everyone who listened with an open mind. I would love to hear feedback if people do take these journeys how does it impact your leadership experience and capacity? Mm -hmm.